Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Vikram Vasana to tell us all about his just-published book from Cambridge University Press titled Uncivil Liberties, Labour, Capital and Commercial Society in Debade Naroji's Political Thought. And I know I've just messed that name up. I got it right <laughs> a second ago. But thankfully, I'm not the expert um, on this wonderful thinker, political figure, Honestly, his career is fascinating, and that's why we have Vic here to tell us all about it. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Miranda. It's really lovely to speak to you. I'm honestly quite excited about this one. I admit I had heard about Naroji a little bit. I mean, he's the first Indian MP, okay, kind of famous, but there's so much more here um, to get into about his work and the influence that he's had um, in India and in the UK and on a whole bunch of people all over. So, This is going to be, I think, quite fascinating on a number of levels. But before I get too far ahead of myself, would you mind please introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm a a lecturer in political theory at the uh, University of Leicester. Um, Only been there a short while now, so it's been just over a year, about 18 months. Um, Interesting thing is uh, I, I mostly worked in history departments before politics departments. So there's this kind of overlap um, going on at the moment between <clears throat> people doing the history of political thought of the global south and then actually sort of re- recovering those ideas to, 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 to write things about political theory or teach political theory and, and the contemporary relevance of, of these figures. Um, and that was kind of what I tried to do with the book. I mean, the last chapter is, is, is hinting at what the contemporary legacies of, of neurology might be. Um, today. Um, so I did a, a PhD in history of political thought, um, was very much on Naroji. Uh, the reason I, I came to him, he was a really um, uh, big figure. In, I remember in undergraduate reading lists, so I was an undergraduate between 2007 and 2010, again, history degree. And when you did the, the history of South Asia paper, um, when I was an undergraduate, the, the primary sources for, for Naroji, particularly his, his um, early 20th century kind of compendium of all of his writing, Poverty and Un-British Rule, was starred on the reading list. So, you know, it was it was strongly suggested that students read this when they're looking at the colonial economy, uh, the, the development of what was called economic nationalism in India between the, the 1850s and the late 19th century. But there was precious little actually academic work on him. There were few few historians who'd actually written book-length uh, you know, treatments of him, or even journal articles that were really getting into lots of detail about what the drain theory was. And he would only really crop up as a kind of, you know, paragraph or a footnote in, in wider histories of, of Indian nationalism. And uh, the, the theory he kind of pioneered or made famous, um, the drain theory, was always said, well, look, he's the, he's the first guy to kind of seriously talk about the fact that the British Empire was extracting resources from India, um, underdeveloping India, and, and using those resources to, um, you know, for, for corporate profits in, in Britain and, and, and other things like that. Um, <clears throat> so I felt like there needed to be a kind of more fuller treatment of of the man himself his career not least because he he you know on top of the drain theory he's the first um indian mp in the uk as you said um so there was a really interesting seems to be a really interesting history to be written there one from the kind of history of political thought standpoint um but also from the standpoint of you know this man who actually spends almost half of his life um living in the uk despite the fact a lot of his initial theorizing happens in india um, and the question was, well, kind of, what does that mean? You know, is he is he kind of aping British liberalism in some ways, and then just doing a kind of colonial critique, or is he using his Indian experiences to totally dismantle British liberalism, recreate his own version? And then the really interesting thing about him, which I think makes him stand out as a figure, that he then transposes that back into the UK. So it's not just that he's being elected as an MP in the UK, but 
He's hobnobbing with, you know, the great and the good of British politics, the British press, people on all parts of the political spectrum, and trying to convince them that their liberalism is wrong and that his Indian liberalism is is right. So there was this kind of empire strikes back element to the to the whole thing that I was I was quite keen to tell. Um, by the time I decided to do a PhD, I mean, some of this work was then being picked up by by Chris Bailey at Cambridge, who ended up being my my PhD supervisor. And he, uh, on the first year of my PhD, published his his kind of now seminal Recovering Liberties book, which is an intellectual history of, of uh, liberalism in general in India. And again, has a pretty a pretty decent treatment of Naroji um, that, that's in, in, in relatively uh, high levels of detail, but he's just one part of a bigger story in that book. Um, so I kind of wanted to tell the just the Naroji story, you know, the intellectual biography of this man um, and recover him as a political thinker. I think one of the things we take for granted in the West is Look, we have all these big names in political thought and philosophy, right? So, literally, Plato all the way down to you know the twentieth century uh, uh, thinkers, um, uh, and they're, they're allowed to stand alone as individual great minds. When when we talk about the global South, we often, particularly in the context of colonialism, often say, "Well, look, there are these groups of people that are pioneering anti-colonial activism or thought or critiquing capitalism and so on." Um, and we've kind of hopped over the intellectual biography to go straight for kind of the social history and the cultural history and the intellectual history, all of which is, you know, fantastically interesting and, and important and so on. Um, but it seemed to me we'd missed a step that that it was worth recovering individuals in, in Indian political thought and the political thought of the global south more broadly as, as global figures, not just people that were speaking to collective Indian concerns, but whose ideas could could maybe go beyond India in the way that, you know, Plato or John Stuart Mill or someone like that um, does. So that's why this ended up becoming a standalone intellectual biography and not not really a sort of wider history of Indian liberals, even though that history has been and, and can absolutely uh, be written. Thank you for situating the book, I think, amongst all of those different um, sort of which part of the conversation, which conversations it's in. That's really, really helpful to start us off um, and makes, you know, a very clear point, kind of what is the gap you're filling? And it's like, yeah, it would be good if we had all of those things. What you've done, what everyone else has done, they're all important um, things to add to our knowledge. Um, so let's get into the book. I think we're going to move roughly chronologically. We'll see how well we stick to that. <laughs> Um, but can you start us a little bit from the beginning? What kinds of influences informed Naroji's early political practice, his early political thinking? What was he sort of learning from, looking at, discussing? Yeah, well, I mean, he's a he's a young man in in uh, colonial Bombay um, in the eighteen thirties and forties. So he's he's born in eighteen twenty five, um, and Bombay is a very very interesting place uh, throughout the nineteenth century. But it, it's kind of a crucible of a lot of social reform debates um, when Naroji is young in the 1830s and 40s, not just from within his own Parsi community. So it's, it's probably worth saying that, you know, he, he he comes from a very small minority in India called the Parsis, who are Zoroastrian migrants from from Persia, from from really the, the kind of early modern period and earlier, um, who've, who've uh, fled kind of conversions to Islam um, and set up shop in India. Um, and became very, very upwardly mobile very, very quickly. So um, originally they just start off as agriculturalists, but they become kind of traders, um, you know, financial intermediaries, insurance brokers, shipbuilders, artisans, investors, all this kind of thing, and find themselves in Bombay because Bombay under the you know, the Portuguese and later the British is very much the center of kind of West Indian uh, commerce. 
Um, the interesting thing about Bombay being that sort of place is it, it becomes relatively, by the standards of the time, cosmopolitan by the middle of the 20, uh, by the middle of the nineteenth century. Um, so, unlike other parts of India, partly just because of the political economy of the city, you have Parsis, you know, working with uh, Muslims and Hindu investors and, and merchants as well, and indeed even the British and the Portuguese, um, without there being a really strong sense of. Uh, kind of religious animosity or, or racial divide. So long as they, you know, their commercial interests intertwined, they were more than happy to kind of work with each other, which actually is quite different from, say, Calcutta, where the, where the British uh, capital and, and Indian capital essentially just stay apart. Um, they want to do their own thing. Um, so that that leads to a kind of, you know, almost low-key liberal cosmopolitan atmosphere amongst the great and the good of Bombay, at least. Um, and it's something they want to maintain because they they realize it undergirds their, their sort of social uh, mobility and their commercial profits and that kind of thing. So there's a there's a range of kind of middle class reformers um, in Hinduism, in in the Parsi community, and in the Muslim community in Bombay who are trying to say, oh look, you know, we need to develop a slightly more individualistic style of of society. We need to maintain the kind of um, uh, philanthropic links that, that bind all of our communities together. So that's funding kind of hospitals, it's funding um, public libraries, it's funding intellectual societies, all that kind of stuff where uh, you know, bourgeois elements from all of these these groups can can have a chat basically and talk about the um, the uh, uh, the, you know, the big issues of the day. And this is really the, the kind of influences that are are really um, you know pretty pretty um, strong on Naroji because he I mean he comes from a fairly modest background but shows himself to be a very good student very quickly. His father um, passes away relatively early on in his life. Um, he probably would have been a, a Parsi priest. Um, if his father was was still around, indeed, he begins the training to become a Parsi priest. But his his mother is very very keen on on kind of a, a you know a secular education as well. Um, and once he he begins that, he he sort of shows himself to be a very very bright kid. Essentially, earns a scholarship to um, you know British schools in in that are set up in Western India, really to train civil servants and things. Um, and then from that becomes um, a graduate of the Elphinstone College, which is basically a university in Bombay, and ends up becoming the first professor, Indian professor professor at Elephantston College of, of Mathematics. So he's a, you know, he's a bright spark. So he's, he's attuned to all of these debates in the, the 30s and 40s, and essentially decides to step in, you know, um, in his own way into social reform efforts, partly because, uh, you know, there is a divide emerging between the sort of professional classes who are highly educated, who are speaking to other middle class elements who might be on the commercial side in Bombay, and a very old group of traditionally minded orthodox, slightly older elements in um, these communities who, you know, um, still have quite patriarchal views, uh, still have quite orthodox religious views, are quite insistent that, um, you know, women shouldn't be getting education and, and this kind of thing. Um, and him and his colleagues, younger colleagues, really run up against this group in quite a big way. Um, and the thing that really sort of, I think, influences him, not just through social reform for his own community, but influences his ideas of how social groups have reformed generally and the, the ways in which um, people are holding them back is that he runs up against what's called the Parsi Panchayat. Now, the Panchayat are sort of village councils um, in the cities. They're community councils that kind of regulate the social affairs, you know, birth, death, inheritance, marriage, all that kind of stuff of individual communities. Uh, they're given kind of legal precedent by the British court system as well, once the British formally colonize all of India. So they have a sort of quite rigid mandate as well. Um, and the people on these, uh, the elders sort of on the Parsi council are, um, you know, hypocrites, basically. I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of preaching on the one hand that, 
you know, Parsi religious mores are going going down the Swanee in the modern era, and people are practicing bigamy and they shouldn't be, and all this kind of stuff. While they themselves are kind of enraptured in all sorts of of, of bigamy scandals and and um, adultery scandals and just kind of straightforward corruption and that kind of thing. So what Naroji is trying to do with social reform in his early years is say, uh, you know, how does society self regulate itself in a way that's rational? in a line with people who are more educated and more enlightened in his view, in a fairly straightforward kind of British sense of, you know, enlightenment ideas of, of liberalism, without having to constantly appeal to this this kind of um, civil court that, that clearly has dropped the ball and is full of hypocrites and liars and, and people who, who aren't, you know, moving with the times as quickly as they should be. Um, and that's kind of where these incipient ideas of civil society start to emerge, that, you know, communities can be self-regulating if they practice certain virtues of individualism, philanthropy, self-restraint, education, self-improvement, all those very Victorian ideas that we, we usually associate with the British. So in those early years, it's, it's actually quite conventionally um, anglophilic, you could say, you know, that they're, they're trying to prove that they're in line with, with certain middle-class British versions of what social progress looks like. Um, and then perhaps we'll talk about how that starts to shift a bit. But that's very much what his early influences are. Hmm. No, that's really helpful. Thank you. Could you tell us maybe, I, I mean, you're getting into it towards the end of that, um, a bit more specifically, kind of what sorts of reforms he wanted to see. And obviously, you've already outlined some of the challenges, some of the people who are like, no, 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 no we're not doing that. Um, to what extent was he pushing for reforms kind of uniquely? Was it a young guard versus an old guard? Or was it him sort of starting to really become quite unique? I think it's it's very much young guard versus old guard. So I mean, he's got co- prominent colleagues who are slightly older than him, like people like um, Naroji Furdunji, who's he's he's almost sort of a mentor to him. Um, other colleagues of of his age group um, from the Parsi community as well, like um, um, Beramji Malabari, who who again is a big Parsi social reformer. Um, and they're all collectively sort of trying to push back. And one of the ways they do this actually is they they you know use their professional credentials and kind of, you know, high literate status to set up um, newspapers, Parsi newspapers and things like this. So the idea is very much that a public debate is being had about what the future of the community should be, what the future of Bombay should be, and so on. Um, in terms of the reforms they want, I mean, one of the really, really big things is is girls' education. So again, not not drastically out of step with sort of British liberal uh, or radical liberal perceptions of, of what um, the benefits of women's education are, you know, if you assume that you're trying to improve a, a particular cultural group, group or community, there is this, you know, what these days we would call, I guess, a slightly misogynistic perception that given the fact women are doing all the, the housework and the raising of the kids and so on, if you want to improve a group, women have to be, you know, have the tools to do that. Um, so really education is about making women enlightened, making them rational so they that they can pass that on to their, their kids. It's not some, you know, um, uh, second wave feminist sort of argument. So I don't want to kind of give him too much credit for that. But um, he is he is treading a fine line, though. So because there are you know orthodox elements of the community that say, you know, why does a woman need to read? Um, you know, if she if she learns to read, she's going to give you too much grief in the house. I mean, quite literally, there are letters in his archive that, that say that sort of thing that are, you know, written to him, um, asking him to stop what he's doing. Uh, so, you know, it, it is the first step to the kind of female intellectual emancipation, individualism as well. Um, and I think the Parsis also see themselves as a sort of vanguard community. I mean, they, they frequently refer to themselves as, or some of them do, as, you know, the Jews of South Asia. So tiny community, surrounded by religious groups that, you know, are, are much bigger than them, 
but they're, they're often setting a good example. And this is very much the the sort of self perception of Parsis in Bombay that that you know they're they're good um, in in business, they're good in education, um, they they comparatively treat their women better than some of the the uh, or allegedly you know some of the the, the larger religious groups around them. Um, and that this should be a model for the rest of Bombay civil society to to kind of um, emulate. Um, now, Naroji, I say, t- t- uh, treads a fine line with this because he he actually is in favour of, of mixed language uh, education. So there are some people that say, look, if you're going to set up schools to send women to, all they should be learning is is English, or the whole education should be through the English medium. He kind of does it partly because actually I think he thinks there's stuff of value in vernacular languages and vernacular traditions. Um, so not least sort of, you know, Zoroastrian religious texts. But also, interestingly, he he says, look, there are all sorts of Hindu plays that teach you good values in society. There's all sorts of Muslim artworks um, and poetry that is useful for teaching you how to be a good, responsible individual. If we don't educate people in the languages they already know, all of that is going to be lost and it's valuable. We should keep it. So in, he's treading a fine line between sort of tradition and and what's perceived to be kind of English modernity. Um, but then he also says, look, you also need English because all of these new texts that are being published in the UK about, you know, the theory of evolution and, and science and geometry and all this stuff that that um, is modern, um, that's only new in the UK as much as it's new in India, um, we're only going to get through the English language. Um, so, so both women and, and men should be kind of dabbling in both. Um, the, the opposition is to say, says, well, let's let's just keep to you know whatever it might be, Farsi, Hindi, um, um, Urdu, whatever, um, Marathi, because if if women get outside of speaking those languages, they'll learn all sorts of newfangled ideas that are going to cause problems for us. Um, so you know he's being he's he's very much a gradualist. He's he's being progressive, but he's he's trying to triangulate between all these competing influences. Um, and actually does a good job. I mean, you know, th- there are um, several women's schools that are established in Bombay at this time. I think the thing that's a, a cause for great disappointment for him is um, throughout his career is that they were set up, a lot of them actually, to be co-educational. So, um, sorry, I don't mean co-educational but, uh, in terms of gender, but co-educational in terms of uh, religious group and community. So there were mixed schools for uh, Muslim girls, Hindu girls and Parsi girls. Um, once these things are set up, often these institutions, partly because of where their money is coming from, tend to become more and more um, uh, sort of communal, I suppose, that, 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 you know, you just have schools for Hindu girls, you just have schools for Muslim girls and so on. Um, so that element of cosmopolitanism that he wanted to foster through female education actually slightly gets gets lost. But he was absolutely keen that, that they should be, um, you know, mixed community at the, at the very beginning. Um, other things are, are slightly less important to him than female education, but it is things like, uh, you know, setting up hospitals, setting up libraries, setting up schools, all these things where, you know, knowledge um, is supposed to kind of percolate through to the community. Uh, good ideas of sanitation and healthcare are supposed to percolate through the community um, and, and all that all that kind of, um, again, stuff that we would associate with building a robust civil society. Um and yeah, I would say those those are really the the key things. He's he's a bit more careful than some of his colleagues like Malabari about criticizing other communities directly. So he would rather set a good example um, and keep his mouth kind of shut rather than wagging the finger in the face of Hindus and things like that, because I think he realizes how problematic that could potentially become. Um, some of his colleagues like um, Baramji Malabari, I mean, flatly write books saying, you know, Hindu traditions are, are awful and they should take a leaf out of the Bombay Parsis books. Uh, uh, sorry, a leaf out of Bombay Parsi's practice to improve their own practices. Um, and there's a very um, sometimes heated exchange of letters between Malabari and Naroji, even though they're good friends, about 
what the best approach to this would be, what, you know, whether parties should be wagging the finger in the face of other communities or whether a kind of slower process of, of setting a good example and showing what benefits it can bring would be a better way of, of bringing Hindus and Muslims uh, with you. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's divisions between that kind of young guard as well. But Banerjee is kind of, yeah, I, th- I say you'd say uh, charting a middle path between, between the, the old guard and the, the more radical versions of the, the new guard. What a tricky place to be in. Yeah. Um, and then to develop some pretty interesting um, thoughts and ideas from there. Can you take us through one of them? Um, what do you mean by labor republicanism in his thinking? Right. So, I mean, this this really emerges in the kind of second phase of his his career, um, and it becomes a core aspect of his his drain theory. So, maybe if I explain what the drain theory is first, um, yeah, it would it would make more idea. sense what what Repu- Labour republicanism is. Um, so, the drain theory. I mean, there's been bits written about it over the years that that essentially says that look, Naraji was the first person to say the British are extracting resources from India. And it's this very kind of, I, I suppose, the first way of understanding colonialism, 19th century colonialism as a as a capitalist phenomenon, right? So it's it's this exploitative extraction of surplus value from the subcontinent, taking it back to the West, um, prefigures a lot of, of Western um, commentary on this. So uh, Hobson, Leonard uh, uh, Hobson in in uh, in the UK, and then later, you know, Lenin uses Hobson's stuff to write to write his stuff as well. Um, and and so one of the big things is saying, well, actually, you're the first person to do this was 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 not Western at all, but but South Asian. Um, my version of the drain theory is a bit more complicated than that. So if we think about um, what I've just been saying about civil society and social reform, I felt that the existing historiography kind of made this this sort of uh, siloed those two things. That social reform was one thing he was doing. Um, he never really gives up on it, but he shifts his focus to kind of more economic matters later in life. But there's not much commentary on why the two things were actually trying to achieve the same thing. What I say about the drain is, yes, Yonarji is is right that, that this was you know a, an analysis of the extraction of economic value from India. But the point he's trying to make is he he rapidly realizes in the 1860s, partly because of a a huge economic crisis that that befalls um, Bombay and and other parts of Western India due to the American Civil War. Um, what happens during the Civil War is that Britain stops exp- uh, importing cotton from the Confederate states of the US uh, uh, for obvious reasons, because they're blockaded by the, the Union Navy and all this kind of stuff, goes out in search for cotton elsewhere. India is the most obvious option. Uh, this leads to an explosion in the price of, of Indian cotton. Um, and a lot of these Parsi businessmen, who are also the ones who have got all the money to do the philanthropy, absolutely kind of fall for the the, the incentives of, of piling borrowed money into cotton cultivation, into setting up new cotton factories, um, into export um, industries, um, and then other stuff that kind of flows from that. So setting up their own banks um, and going into money lending in a much bigger way. Um, Crazy things like land reclamation programs. So literally getting, you know, more land from the the Indian Ocean to kind of increase the size of Bombay and then hoping that those investments will will, uh, you know, um, pay dividends in the future. Hugely expensive things to be doing. Um, Of course, the Civil War then ends quite abruptly um, in 1866. And uh, the UK goes back to importing cotton from from uh, the state. So the the price absolutely collapsed. The banks call in all their money. Um, A lot of these big Parsi philanthropists basically go bankrupt. And it's a huge psychological shock to the Parsis who I'd said had thought of themselves as the toasts of the town, that they were the vanguard community of of Bombay and so on. 
Um, one thing this this you know um, alerts to Nairobi and some of his his young Parsi colleagues very very quickly, and you can see this in the the newspapers they set up where this discussion is going on. Where is all the money for these philanthropic projects that kind of holds Bombay civil society together going to come from now? Um, because all the people who are funding it have gone bust. Part of it is also that Parsi kind of rivalries with with mus- certain groups of Muslim merchants and certain groups of Hindu merchants who were by the middle of the 20th, uh, 19th century muscling in on certain trades has now kind of become much more tense because of this economic downturn, as you know, economic downturns always seem to cause um, cultural and social and religious difficulties between different groups. Um, and it was no different here. Um, that actually happened alongside a series of quite unfortunate Parsi Muslim riots around certain religious festivals through the 1850s, 60s and 70s, um, which then just adds fuel to the fire of, of suspicion of cosmopolitanism in Bombay uh, and that kind of thing. So Naroji is now sort of shifting his thinking and he's saying, well, you know, the, 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 the kind of active philanthropy thing was a good way of, of doing this. But partly the problem is economic, that that can never survive if you're always standing on fairly shaky economic grounds. And who's responsible for the reason we stand on shaky economic grounds? It's the British, Uh, because lots of evidence eventually emerged that the British sort of saw the crisis on the horizon, um, at least the the British governors of Bombay, and actually warned white capital to, to disinvest from stuff or stay away from certain types of investments while not telling the people they've been doing business with quite closely before the Parsis that this was going to happen. So there's a suspicion that starts to develop of, of you know, um, I guess we'd say unsurprisingly now, the British colonizer um, in the way that the Parsis were quite friendly with them before. So Naoji then starts thinking, well, all of these countries that have quite, you know, like Britain, like France and so on, a reasonably uh, you know, solidaristic civil society where people are able to kind of get on with each other as individuals that don't rely on loads and loads of philanthropy from one community. It must be something about their political economy that allows it to function. Why is it more stable than India's? Um, so it's a kind of incipient social contract kind of theory that countries that have a properly working market economy, um, there seems to be reciprocity between producers and consumers um, people who are kind of selling their wares to people who want to buy them at a fair price, irrespective of what religion you're from, irrespective of what caste you're from. Um, he thinks there is some sort of, you know, natural solidarity that develops through fair market transactions. So he's still a capitalist in that sense. I mean, I think one of the things I was always keen to say in this book, that he he doesn't end up as a kind of, uh, you know, communist or, or socialist by the end of the book. He's, he's, he's always a capitalist, but he has a very kind of critical view of capitalism because of his colonial experiences. Um, So the drain theory develops on the back of this, and he goes out into the Indian countryside as well with people like Naroji Fordunji, um, his his older mentor, um, to do really remarkable stuff, basically sort of almost political science, social science sort of questionnaires to ask, okay, if you're a peasant and the British are levying a tax from you, how much are they taking? Are they taking more than they said they would? Do they take money from you in times of famine? Um, if you don't have the money, do they take your produce in kind over and above what they said they would? If you can't pay, do they do they physically coerce you and all this kind of stuff? So he's starting to get into the mold of if Indians can't contract on, in a market system on a fair basis because they don't have the produce to export to each other or sell to each other in order to do it, where is this all going? And he comes to the conclusion that the British are just extractive. They're sufficiently extractive that the Indian is not left with enough to contract on a on a fair play basis uh, in the market with a fellow Indian or it might be a Brit or even an international trade and that kind of stuff. So in this sense, my version of the drain becomes a very political and social thing as much as an economic thing. It's about um, 
you know, nicking India's wealth, but it's about politically and socially underdeveloping India in a way that it cannot be a functioning civil society. And from that stems a lot of other kind of political premises. Well, if you don't have a solidaristic civil society and something that can be reasonably called a people, you know, a, a, an actual block of people who have a sense of trust in each other, then you can't have what looks like self-government, self-determination and democracy, which is precisely the point, you know, John Stuart Mill makes in um, considerations of representative government. So if that's the kind of liberal model of how countries get from, you know, um, not being uh, 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 national liberal democracies to being national liberal democracies, J.S. Mill famously said, well, India can't get there because it's too fractured and there's too many groups that are throats and so on. What Naraji is doing was saying, well, why? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's because of underdevelopment. It's because of the British. It's the fact that the drain depoliticizes us to a certain extent um, that keeps us at each other's throats. Um, so that's the broad, broad kind of theory of what, what the drain is above and beyond what it's what previous scholars have said. The Labour republicanism is, is the bit I sort of add that, that, that wants to say, well, look, his liberalism is qualitatively different from what mainstream British liberalism is at the time or what colonial liberalism is at the time. Because what republicanism, as we sort of understand it as a political theory, is about is not um, negative and positive liberty in, in the liberal sense. So it's, it's neither the state kind of physically interfering with you and stopping you from doing things, nor is it um, you know, the positive liberty that we think of as, okay, the state may not interfere with you, but if, you're, uh, if you lack an education, you're not going to be able to exercise your freedoms in the same way that someone with an education can. So you need a free education system to try and get everyone to, to more or less a level playing field. Republicanism is all about dependence, that nothing might be interfering with you, and you might even at face value have equal capacities, but you're being forced into systems of reliance on certain arbitrary structures that then you have no mode of redress for. So there's not a court system that says, uh, you know, let's let's redress the imbalance. There's not, um, uh, you know, something like, uh, 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 what's the organization I'm trying to think of now in Britain? Um, totally lost my mind. But the Financial Regulatory Authority, something like that, that says, you know, um, the practices of a particular set of banks is, is uh, exploitative or causing dependence on people. You have n- n- no, no source of appeal. Um, so basically what I say Naraji is saying is that that is the nature of colonial capitalism, that it tends to force people into systems of, of economic dependence which they didn't necessarily know they were getting into at the beginning, because at the beginning they might have thought they were making money out of it. But afterwards, because of the imbalance, financial imbalances between Britain and India, you end up in a system of just kind of flat dependence and you can't do any other type of economic activity because the ability to get out of that dependence is not there. So Labour, I call what he's drained is Labour Republicanism because he starts to then say, well, what do you need to do to reform capitalism to make sure that Indians have some system of redress? Um, and because he, he he essentially develops an idea um, that basically all value in society is created through labor, i.e. it's you as a laborer, a farmer, mixing your work with the land that creates all uh, original value in society. So whatever money banks hold originally comes from that, that sort of primordial process. Uh, looks very much like what John Locke is saying um, in his kind of studies of, of uh, his labor theory of value in, in the Americas. Um, locks becomes a lot more religious because it's about God giving you certain capacities and therefore, uh, you know, your property is inviolable because God gave you those capacities so no one has the right to take it away from you. Um, Naraji doesn't quite go that far. It's it's just, a, it's an observational thing for him that you know, India is, is largely agricultural. That's the stuff the British are after. They're mostly after primary products. 
if the money in British banks is then being lent again to Indians to to sort of lock them into systems of dependence because they become debt ridden, that original money came from the cotton farmers, the wheat farmers, the rice farmers, and so on. So really, there is a, a labor system that produces all this value. So if you're trying to get out of dependence, the focus must be on the rights of labor, uh, always and everywhere. Um, and he starts to suggest things like, uh, you know, um, empowering labor on on local legislatures in India, um, you know, trying to Indianize the civil service so that all of this this value created by labor that's being taken out of India by British bureaucrats, uh, either through their pensions or because they're transferring money back to their families in the UK and that kind of stuff. It might be in the hands of an Indian middle class in the civil service, but it does stay in India um, and that it gets reinvested in India. And so this cycle of kind of dependency on Western finance from Indian laborers is, is kind of being uh, broken. Um, and like I said, we might talk about it in a bit, but this then gets exported, this idea to, to Britain itself, because Naroji ends up in Britain and, and starts to think, Actually, the the economic system of Britain is not not as great as I was led to believe either. That that the working classes in Britain are in forms of dependency as well, um, and this is where you know it's really his Indian liberalism and Indian experiences that are being used to redress a European inequality, which I think is really unusual in the nineteenth century from from perspectives in the global South. I mean, often these figures are more concerned, as you might expect, with their own corner of the world. Um, but you've you've got Naroji because of his kind of global career. Um, coming up with a with a much more universal theory of of, of liberalism and, and labor republicanism. Before we get into the um, going to Britain and realizing, oh wait, everything's not so shiny, which I think a lot of people can probably identify with listening to this even now. Um, how was this initial theory before it added those global components? How was it received in India and in Britain? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a really good question. It's it's always contested, it's always debated. So um there are many, many Indians who think that look, there's there's an element of this maybe going on. And these are Indians who, you know, are still prosperous in business usually. Um, but in a in a sort of cost benefit analysis, is the trade off not okay? Um, and you get lots of arguments uh, that you know sort of ape British colonial civilizing mission propaganda, I suppose. That you know, well, they did build the railways, um, so that's that's a trade off. They do bring you know law and order, so that's a trade off. Um, the other thing is, you know, we're, we're directly in business with them, so do you want to stress them out that much by by kind of peddling this sort of um, narrative i think the other thing and it, i mean not all of these criticisms are unreasonable by the way i mean naroji is not a sort of uh you know perfect economist or a perfect um social theorist just as no no kind of great thinkers in history are um you know like i said with that business of saying well look in india this could partially be solved by indianizing the civil service that's actually a very low-key reform for the scale of the problem he's talking about um because yes you know the, the salaries of those um civil servants would then go into indian pockets and it gets spent in India. But in the context of the entire subcontinent, that's a very small amount of money. Um, the other thing he he talks about, um, because he's he's still effectively a free trader, um, you know, he's not talking about indefinite protectionism or economic nationalism, that, that you know, the phrase we would use today. Um, he, he occasionally advocates protectionism, but he says, oh, look, this is very temporary. It's only going to be for a couple of years until more money is staying in the pockets through tariffs of, of Indian business and the Indian exchequer. And then we can go to sort of within five or 10 years back to kind of perfectly free trade between, uh, you know, the European core of the capitalist economy and us. I mean, I would even say that's that's slightly naive because the the level of kind of, 
you know, even today, but it, it, certainly in the 19th century, just the overwhelming superiority of the European, uh, you know, economy, the, the banks, uh, financial capital, all that sort of stuff would, would lock India back into a kind of primary producer, um, you know, basic wage labor sort of place very, very quickly. Um, what you would have needed is, is you know, the setting up on a huge scale of, of, of Indian finance, probably, you know, even the, what we might call the nationalization of, of European banks in India and that kind of thing. And you can't really do that until you have political power, right? So from a, from a nationalist point of view, uh, you probably actually want to take political power first before you engage in these sorts of economic and social reforms, um, which is why I always say in the book, you know, uh, Naroji is not really a nationalist in that sense. He's he's a sort of um, imperial reformer in in some ways, but the the importance of him is is that he's able to say that these are global things that are relevant even to to white people, not just to to Indians. Um, and that is as important as, as saying you're a nationalist. I mean, I think we've got locked into, uh, you know, at least until the early 2000s, a way of looking at colonial history than in these quite sort of crude dyads of colonizer and colonized Western knowledge systems and um, sort of knowledge systems in the global South, uh, you know, uh, Foucauldian forms of governmentality and then pre-modern forms of governmentality and this sense that never the twain can really meet and that if they try to, you're, you're just aping the European in some way. Um, so part of this was trying to say, well, look, you... you fine, he might not be a nationalist in the proper sense of the word, but the way he's tackling this problem is very, very clearly Indianizing liberalism. He's not, in the post-drain theory of his career, simply aping the West. And the way we know that is because when he takes these ideas to Europe um, and the UK, people say, oh, well, you're not liberal. They don't recognize what he's saying. Um, So we know he doesn't fit the kind of simply aping their ideology mold. Um, They call him a socialist. Some people call him a communist. Um, You know, some people just say he's doing, you know, everything he's doing is kind of insane. Um, But he always maintains, no, no, I'm a liberal. I'm just doing liberalism properly. And the only reason he's able to say that is because of his Parsi West Indian experiences that to him have made this make perfect sense. so in India, yes, I mean, it, it is debated. There are, there are people who also take the drain and end up doing something different with it. And then he criticizes them for doing that. So um, there's a, a chap in, in Bengal called Ramesh Chandra Dutt who, who writes a colossal economic history of India. And in that has the, the, this phrase, the drain used repeatedly. But he in that book says, actually, you know, Indianization of the civil service isn't important. Protectionism isn't that important. All you need to do is reduce the tax burden on Indian farmers and the whole thing will solve itself. Um, and Naraji says, no, 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 please don't don't use this phrase drain for that, because that's not a drain. I might admit that the tax burden is too high, but the drain is about the actual structural relationship between Indian labor and British capital in Britain. And what you're doing is not changing that relationship. All you're doing is saying, let's lower the tax rate, which fine, but people have been saying that for ages. Um, so then that debate develops between people who do want to use the, 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 the term drain, but they don't really agree on what it what it is. Um, so it becomes this kind of buzzword in a sense, but Naroji's having to fight back against people who aren't interested in it on the one hand, and people who've um, you know, maybe bastardized his original theory in, in another way. Um, and outside of Britain, it's picked up by, by you know, communist and socialist elements who, who, who see the only solution as kind of world revolution. Um, and Naraji is absolutely not interested in that uh, because he's he's fundamentally a kind of non-violent liberal reformist guy. Um, so he finds himself backing away from that that argument as well. So yeah, he's he's always beset by by these debates. But it's one of the reasons that made this study so so interesting that an Indian could you know be a conceptual innovator in this way and it cause essentially a global debate about the nature of colonialism and and the path out of it. Thank you for taking us through kind of 
not just what he was thinking, but also how people were reacting, what the debates were. Um, that really helps create this sense of sort of intellectual understanding. And again, kind of as you said, the what is he bringing to this? It's not just, oh, let's lower the taxes, right? Like loads of people have said that, right? Um, so I'd love to now that we have this kind of what is he saying? How are people reacting to it? Let's add in that global element. Um, what changed about his thinking when he came to Britain? What was he taking from debates happening around these issues in other parts of the British Empire, like Ireland? You know, I, I think that the point you made about this really being a global um, critique, a global theory, is really important and helpful. So can you take us through sort of that transition from something focused more on India to being something more global? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things to to bear in mind about neurology, I mean, uh, I mentioned that that starred reading on, on the undergraduate reading list. It, it, it kind of is a bit misleading because it makes it look like all of his theories became prominent in 1901 when un- a Poverty and Unbritish Rule was published as a big compendium of his writings. Um, but really, the drain goes all the way back to the 1860s. So the, his first writing on it is immediately after this economic crisis in Bombay. Um, and he's delivering papers on it in India. He's delivering papers on it in the UK. Um, uh, and that they have a series of titles, uh, but th- things like, you know, the, the needs and wants of India and um, um, poverty of Indians and all this kind of stuff. Um, so he's thinking about it at a very early stage. And he, he actually only first arrives in the UK in 1855. So he comes as... Uh, a simple merchant um, as part of a, a, a kind of Parsi trading firm, export import kind of stuff. Um, not interested in, he's still interested in the Indian social reform side of things for even while he's in Britain, but he's not really interested in British politics at all. I mean, he's just there as a, as a businessman. Um, the economic crisis changes all that because like I said, he starts to develop a more global perception of what, what the Indian economy's relationship with the Imperial center is. Um, his own company, although he tries to reestablish it and so on, essentially goes bankrupt eventually. Um, and he gets involved in politics and he, he starts to say, well, look, okay, well, why has this happened? Why is how these Parsi businesses that were otherwise very, very good um, ended up being sort of driven under by this economic crisis? And a lot of that is to do with, with British banks um, and the way British banks have treated Indian business because they often uh, you know, try and recall their debts, but they they do it in a slightly slippery way where they recall try and recall more money than is actually owed. Um, they try and insinuate that money that is owed by you know, Naroji's firm to um, other Indian firms or other um, sort of pan-Asian firms that are based in Shanghai and, and Hong Kong um, are actually owed to them. And Naroji has to go through, he even goes to court, but he actually has to go through this kind of torturous process of proving that um, actually, that money is not owed to them. That's still his, and, and they're only owed this much, and all that kind of stuff. And he does actually meet all of his debts to them. So he's an honest man. He pays all of his stuff. But he then says, you know, he goes on this political sort of quest of saying, why do European banks behave in this kind of really fundamentally dishonest way? And then starts linking that to all of that kind of agricultural questionnaires he's done in India, the experience of his, you know, uh, middle class friends in Bombay going bankrupt and so on, and saying, ah, look, the problem lies in Britain as well. That these these banking practices are really, really um, problematic and the way that the relationship between how uh, British Indian trade works in that essentially the money extracted from British agriculturalists is used in um, kind of uh, sort of commercial bills essentially to then lend money to British importers who then use that money to extract even more produce from India. So it's this kind of vicious cycle of using Indian money to extract more Indian money. Um, and so that's the decision he decides to go into politics. Um, 
But obviously living in Britain for long times, you know, literally decades, he goes back to Bombay periodically, but basically from the 1850s through to um, uh, 1907, he's he's essentially living in Britain, going back to India for sort of, you know, three years here, three years there. Um, He starts to develop a very close um, understanding of how these banks then have their effect on the British economy as well. Um, initially starts to run for office in the 1880s, uh, doesn't quite make it as the, the, the candidate for Holborn for the Liberal Party um, in the middle of the 1880s, runs again in 1892, and that's when he's elected. By this point, he's made loads and loads of contacts with, uh, say, Br- British uh, cooperative societies, people who are in Britain starting to understand that actually, you know, you also need a reciprocal relationship between capital and labor or consumers and labor in a way that you're cutting out the banking middleman or you're cutting out kind of insurance firms and these people who are seen to kind of leech money out of you without really producing anything. Um, so he's, he's integrating those ideas into what he's thinking. He's very um, attuned, as everyone actually in politics in Britain is at the time, to the home rule crisis in Ireland. So right from the 1860s through to, you know, the 1880s and 90s, uh, certainly through the Gladstone ministries, you know, the home rule crisis is absolutely the core of of British politics. Um, And so many of the debates, economic debates around the home rule crisis are that Ireland cannot achieve um, economic stability and some sense of solidarity between its, its people, including different religious groups until the money in Ireland stays in Ireland so that these people can conduct, uh, contract with each other in, in market terms on a fair basis and create sort of economic contracts of solidarity between each other. And the perception there is very much like India, that you have absentee English landlords who own the land in Ireland but live in England, extract the surplus va- value back to England, um, and then again use that money to extract more and more kind of um, produce from Ireland. Um, and of course, there's the imagery of the famine and all this kind of stuff um, still dancing around in, in people's heads that just adds a kind of really, you know, a concrete element to, to, to the awfulness of what economic exploitation can do. Um, and it must be said there were a series of famines in India as well that Naraji is very conscious of, not least because they affect a lot of places where Parsis own land in the countryside through the 1860s and 70s. Um, and, and they're big, you know, I mean, it's there's millions of people die in these famines, just as they did in the Irish famine. Um, so there is this real sense of, you know, the human catastrophe of colonial capitalism on both sides of um, of, of, of the world going on in Ireland and and India. Uh, and Naroji is, is in touch with lots of uh, Irish nationalists. So he's speaking to people like Michael Daffett, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the O'Connor brothers, all this kind of stuff, who within themselves have different debates about the future of Ireland. But a clear picture is emerging of the need for some sort of Irish settlement that allows a political economy of Ireland to be established on a more uh, you know, fair play basis, basically. Um, so all of that is now making him think that, oh, look, that the, the colonial metropole is, is not so hunky-dory either. Add to that the fact that, you know, after 1866, 67, um, in principle, much of the, the working class or male working class has been enfranchised um, above a certain property qualification. Um, if they're in parliament, why are they not able to change anything? So this is where Labour Republicanism now comes back for for Britain as well. Well, it must be because they're in all sorts of kind of desperate working dependency that they just don't have the political kind of uh, you know flexibility to to really go for major reforms that would change the economy. Um, and they're locked into all sorts of dependent perceptions about what you know being a kind of um, 
self-restrained, you know, self-supporting worker is supposed to be, and that you you owe your you know your your kind of capitalist boss a kind of debt of gratitude and all this kind of stuff. So psychological dependence as much as anything else. Um, and this is again with the narrative that hasn't been talked about at all really in the existing literature. He he comes up with with a series of reforms for what could be done in Britain to improve the the situation. So. He's conscious of the fact that the the political makeup is very different in India because you know there's nothing even resembling a national democracy in India. The the change has to come through the civil service. You get more Indians on the civil service, that will start to smooth the edges of some of this exploitation. What he does for Britain, he says, well, look, Parliament is already there. Some working class people are enfranchised, but the nature of Parliament and certainly the House of Lords and things like that means that these people can't really exercise their real interests. What can we do on the ground? And he comes up with, you know, I think, you know, ideas that aren't bad for today, things that are really, really radical, um, uh, sort of uh, wage arbitration councils and courts where he says, well, look, why don't we decide on a fair wage for particular businesses up and down the country or particular genres of business by basically having courts that decide the, the salaries, the fair salary for worker. And you can put representatives of capital on the, uh, you know, the, the panel sort of discussing this, the representatives of workers, um, you know, uh, academic experts, and then people can can bargain and debate and vote on what a fair salary would actually be rather than just letting capital kind of foist it on on the worker. And, you know, to, that's not a million miles from today's kind of debates about, you know, should boards of, of major companies have worker representation on it? Um, and that kind of thing. So really, really forward looking uh, stuff um, in terms of economic reform for the West as well. Um, and then he's involved in all sorts of other things like trying to, to push for the abolition of of things that he thinks are kind of uh, clubs for capital where they just extract uh, money from things. So things like livery companies, which are still a big deal in uh, in the UK at the time, he wants them abolished because he thinks they're just sort of private members clubs for, for you know, bourgeois um uh, owners of capital uh, that, that extract membership fees from from artisans and this kind of stuff for no no real good reason. Um, he's really into workers' cooperatives. Interestingly, he ends up buying all of his clothes from workers' cooperatives while he's in Britain. So you can see in his private papers that he's he's practicing what he preaches. I mean, he when he goes to buy a new kind of you know top hat or suit or whatever for for Parliament when he's elected, um, partly because he's doing it in a bespoke way. So his suit is not. Uh, typically European, it's got kind of European flair to it, but he's trying to incorporate Parsi elements into it to show that he's, you know, um, not not totally sort of ditched his his origins. Um, uh, and he goes to these cooperative companies and basically says, "Look, can you can you stitch me up one of these, please?" Um, and and they do it for him. And he continues throughout the decades purely to buy these things from from cooperative companies and and so on. Um, and other things are again really really topical utility companies. So he sees private utility companies as you know, essentially extracting um, um, value from from labourers who, uh, you know, uh, need water and, and gas and all that kind of stuff to survive to do the the the, the you know primordial work of creating value in the first place. But they're being exploited by these companies. Um, and he goes into quite a lot of detail of how much you know the, the the workers in his constituency are paying for water and this kind of stuff, and and whether these things should effectively be. Uh, he thinks made into cooperatives, not nationalised. So one thing to say is he's he's always very suspicious of of nationalisation, partly because of his Indian experience, because of course the national state in India or the the kind of all India state is colonial, um, and he's seen for decades that that the way it's done things, because it's 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 the landowner in India or large parts of India has been deeply deeply exploitative. So this is why I say he's not really a conventional socialist. He's um, trying to come up with ways in which individual liberty can be preserved while levelling the playing field between capital and and labour in a way that doesn't involve mass state intervention. Um, and of course, this is a way that he differs from quite a lot of his socialist contemporaries in, in Britain at the time as well. Mm. 
And because of those differences um, and because of kind of all the things that he's balancing between and threading together, I think it's unsurprising to go back to what you said right at the beginning, that he's had rather a bit of influence um, on a bunch of different kinds of political actors and political thinkers. Um, in fact, you go so far as to say in the book that this legacy within and beyond India is, quote, subtler and longer lasting than just the symbolism of being, yay, the first Indian MP. Um, can you take us through some of these subtle, longer lasting influences and legacies? Absolutely, yes. I mean, this was the the thing that I suppose is always difficult to to trace intellectual influences, you know, just as a a methodological thing is always quite difficult to trace because you can never definitively prove that it, it came from one person. Um, and even, uh, I mean, this is partly going into you know, detail about how you do um, the history of ideas, but, you know, someone might cite someone and say, yes, I got this from there, but they're often citing the people they know their readers will not think of as controversial. So it's not necessarily the case that they did get it from there. It's that they're, they're kind of hiding behind sort of acceptable mainstream figures so you you very rarely find naroji kind of invoked in a direct way um by a lot of the people i think he's had an influence on but what you can trace is sort of the circulation of texts letters and so on where his work is being alerted to people um and then interestingly if you then read those people's subsequent work you can see elements of the drain um theory emerging um the the most famous one although the, the most difficult to trace is is mark so um, you know, we know that Marx's ideas about India um, and, and you know, the non-West generally, as far as revolution goes and proletarianism goes, was fairly conventional 19th century kind of Orientalist views that, OK, look, India needs to go through capitalism in order to get to, to communism. Um, and so implicitly, the, the, the British colonial project, insofar as he thought it was initially bringing capitalism to India, um, which have, I mean, you know, history sort of debunked since then, but it's what he believed. Um, it needed it before it could then have a revolution against the forces of kind of um, bourgeois colonialism and, and so on. Um, there is a pivot in Marx towards the end of his career in the, the sort of later part of the 19th century, um, where he starts to start, you know, famously look at the Russian Mir and the Indian Panchayat as places that are kind of incipiently socialist before they've become capitalist. Um, but also in in his commentary on the British role in India, where he starts referring to them as bloodsuckers and and you're know, taking um, stuff out of the country um, just to kind of uh, uh, you know improve the situation for for capitalists in Britain, and therefore India can never be properly capitalist, which kind of is what Naroji is saying. Um, that happens almost immediately after. If I remember correctly, it's almost a year after. Um, Karl Kautsky, who is a, you know, another major prominent um, uh, international communist in, in Europe, um, is writing to uh, Henry Mayers Heinemann, who's Britain's most p- prominent socialist, saying, um, and now Roger eventually as well, but it's Heinemann that puts them in touch, saying... Um, you know, just talking about the situation in the global south and and Heinemann, who knows Naroji very intimately, saying, look, there's this chap called Dada by Naroji. He's written this stuff on the drain from India. I should send you his work. Um, and then you know, a year later, you have Kautsky passing this on to Marx. And though Marx never mentions Naroji, all of a sudden, these sorts of arguments start to emerge in Marx's work. Um, so it's not to say that, you know, Marx isn't looking at other stuff. I mean, you know, like I say, intellectual influence is a lot more multi-vectored than that. Um, But there seems to be a plausible argument to be made that this Indian who, uh, you know, is one of the the first real critiques of colonial capitalism ends up influencing, you know, Karl Marx, who is, you know, one of the the biggest figures of of, um, 
political philosophy of, of you know the modern era um and obviously has a huge global impact and if if we know the direction communist movements then take in the 20th century where they admit that in in places like china indonesia um even in india where admittedly communism doesn't doesn't take off in quite the same way as it does in those other places but there is this perception that okay you don't need to go through this kind of stadial theory of of, of uh, communist revolution um that you can go straight to the peasantry particularly in maoism um to overturn this stuff now what i would say is naroji would have found this horrifying because it's absolutely not a liberal sort of gradualist approach to these things and it's it's violent um but you know, it, it just goes to show in the history of political thought or history of ideas that claiming ownership of ideas is is very, very difficult. They circulate, they're interpreted, they land where they land as certain sort of contexts and challenges are, are kind of reinterpreting them in particular ways, and people do their own thing with them. Precisely how Naroji ends up reinterpreting British liberalism, you know, he kind of deconstructs all those concepts for his own his own purposes. So I would say that is the really big, you know, I think um uh mainstream one. Others are, are sort of more of their time, but they have a kind of slow burn. So uh, his ideas on the drainer are picked up by um, a, a American populists within the, the Democratic Party. Um, uh, uh, I'm trying to get his name the right way around now. Um, William Jennings Bryan, I think that's the right way around. He's a, he's a sort of so, huge, yeah. huge populist figure in the American Democratic Party who's very pro-agriculturalist, is kind of weighing in on the issue of the gold standard, the fact that American producers are kind of being um, exploited by, you know, big commercial and industrial interests in in the industrial Northeast, uh, um, and, and that something needs to happen in order to kind of rebalance this. Um, that is all being said in the context of American expansionism in the Philippines and so on. So there's this immediate attraction to, to Naroji, who, again, his work is possibly sent to Brian um, via people like uh, um, Henry Myers Heinemann, sort of socialist networks that he has in, in the United States. Um, and, and, and what Jennings Bryan actually does... Um, cite Naroji, he quite openly uses him to say, well, look, look at what the British have done to India. They've, to- with all the goodwill in the world, they've totally, um, you know, rusticated this place, turned it into a land of kind of perpetual peasants who will never be able to get out of their their dependency through through the drain. This is precisely what we'll end up doing to the Philippines. And it's very interesting that he makes that comment in the context of talking about how American farmers are being exploited as well. So, you know, it's Naroji's ability to link the colonial exploitation with how workers' rights manifest in the the kind of, you know, North, uh, global North core, that Brian also seems to have a kind of natural sympathy for. Um, and again, it's useful for him, because of course, he's, he's saying that, look, there is this sort of international consensus around um, these sort of, in his view, would be kind of, you know, uh, progressive populist um, arguments about workers' rights, uh, and so on. Um, other influences in Britain, I mean, he seems to continue certainly to influence people like Heinemann. So Heinemann really is a bigwig in, in sort of British socialism. Um, Naroji is very careful about his relationship with him because Heinemann is considered a sort of insurrectionary socialist. So Naroji is always quite careful to distance himself from appearing on a publication with him and this kind of thing. But you can tell from their letters from each other that they're constantly in communication about uh, you know the drain, exploitation and so on. What they disagree on is the need for for violent revolutionary action. Um, but certainly, Naroji gives him plenty of money to do his stuff in Britain, and and um, Heinemann is is all too happy to kind of circulate Naroji's ideas as widely as possible within the British socialist movement. Um, so again, you know, Naroji's works had a kind of wide reach through people like that, and it's 
difficult to trace directly what you know the influence would have been but it seems clear that there, there at least was a south asian political theoretical contribution not just to british liberalism at the time um and people who took those ideas seriously um and british sort of socialism or social democratic thought as as well uh, so once you get to you know the sydney webs and and um, beatrice webs of this world who are who, again talking about cooperatives um Ramsay MacDonald in the early 20th century uh, div- seems to talk about India in terms that would be very sympathetic to the Narodian view uh, as well. And actually himself goes to India and has a look around and writes his own his own tract um, on the economic condition there. All seem to have quite strong echoes of this original work that, that Naroji did in the middle of the, the 19th century. Um, the other influences in South Asia itself, and I guess this is in some senses a bit more uh, all over the place because he's he's um, you know taken forward by people who are within the liberal camp as you might expect, um, but he's also taken forward by people like Nehru who who you know do favour massive state intervention and nationalisation um, to to kind of resolve these problems. But the thing he always falls back on, even if he doesn't agree with Nehruji on the sort of the style of reform, is this theory of labour labour republicanism and, and dependency. So Nehru's point is always that actually. Yes, there may have been religious violence in India. Yes, the castes may not get on. India is a very fractured country. But the thing you need to do to to create solidaristic relationships between these groups is not say, please, can you you know hammer people over the head and say stop being religious, or we're going to you know make sec- India secular in the French sense that you can't publicly express your religious affiliation or that kind of stuff, but to create a, a fair system of exchange where people will have solidaristic relations with one another and will just get over as Nehru thinks is a natural part of modernization these sort of petty what he would call medieval um uh, sort of attachments um and that again goes back to that very narrowian view of what a, a, a properly functioning capitalist economy can do um and Nehru, you know he is in that sense a, a cap he might be a state capitalist but he's still effectively a capitalist i mean we're not really seriously talking about mass um uh, popular ownership of the means of production. It's still the state and its technocrats um, and um, owning the sort of, you know, the commanding heights of the Indian economy, um, not unlike the Soviet model. Uh, and then small businesses allowed to operate as usual within within the rest of the country. So it's a, again, it's a, it's a highly sort of qualified capitalism um, in some senses. Those two are not, I don't think that's surprising. The more, the more surprising one is people like Gandhi and, and people on the conservative sort of side of Indian politics um, who seem to kind of like elements of the, the republicanism of what, what Naroji is saying, but then invert it and say, actually, what he's saying is more of an anti-modern argument. So they say, well, if you want to maintain the, the freedom of the worker, where they're not tied into forms of, of capitalist dependence, then where is the best place for that? Well, it's the Indian village, because people are working the land they own. Once you get rid of kind of big landlords, you know, they're, they're eating the produce. They're only really kind of trading with the person down the road. They're not all trying to send all their stuff to the ports to be exported and so on. Um, and that Republican element manifests in Gandhi very, very clearly, where he says, you know, the, the sources of dependency and evil in India are all the cities. It's the big industrial cities. It's this desire to live as a kind of atomistic individual in these kind of, you know, new new kind of social settings. The village is the place where real non-dependence happens but unlike Naroji, it's not about sort of uh, reinvigorating capitalism properly or and and a kind of fair form of industrialism it's about just getting rid of that entirely um and i think that trope is you know really present through gandhi and and what i do in the book is i say well he never really disavows Naroji. i mean in in the beginnings of hind swaraj where he's engaged in this kind of socratic dialogue 
with um, his interviewer, although he's written the interviewer himself. Um, he says, oh, well, you know, you've, your, your politics of Congress has moved well beyond the stuff Naroji, who you know, was a founding member of the International Congress, um, advocated. Do you disavow him? Do you think he was wrong? And he goes, oh, no, no not at all. Um, I would say that, you know, the, the methods he used are not the methods we need for now, but he was absolutely right in his analysis of poverty. Um, now, he doesn't elaborate that on that much, but what I've done with that statement is say, well, look, he clearly has some intellectual affinity with what Naroji was doing. Can we go through Gandhi's work and see what that affinity might have looked like and what it might mean? And it seemed to me that this kind of business of the republicanism of the Indian peasant in the village um, and that that sort of inherited republicanism from Naroji was the thing he'd kept. He just totally sort of inverted what the end goal of that was. So it's it's not modernity in a market economy that, that works for everyone. It's a, you know, it's a it's sort of pre-modern economy, um, effectively in, in some ways. Um, so yeah, these these very kind of um you know, unexpected legacies as well that you're you're picked up by people who you wouldn't think are your ideological uh friends. But but that is how the you know history of ideas work. They they tend to be interpreted um ad infinitum to, to some extent. Um, and that Gandhi model of the economy actually is, you know, used to be the the core sort of thinking of the party that's in power in India at the moment, the, the Bharatiya Janta Party, right up until the sort of late 80s, early 90s, where they, they pivoted to a more kind of straightforwardly neoliberal um, agenda. But so you can see that, you know, through Gandhi, potentially Naroji's ideas actually had a very um, prominent influence on the Indian right as much as the Indian left. Um, again, not necessarily something he would have been thrilled about, but but that's that's where we are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and that's I think one of the things that's so interesting about a book like this is that not just the ideas, but where they come from, and then what happens to them. Um, and none of those trajectories are as straightforward or as kind of simplified as we might think, which is why we need books like this. Um, so thank you for taking us through all of those different aspects. Obviously, the book itself has loads of detail. We've done essentially a highlights tour. So for listeners who want more, um, the book itself really goes into all of this much more comprehensively. Um, but I am coming to the limits of my time with you. So I will ask my final question. Um, this book is obviously available, which means you're no longer writing it. Yeah. Is... <laughs> Mercifully. Yeah. Exactly. Um, is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's on this exact topic, whether or not it's a book that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, very briefly. I mean, it's in, in the very tentative stages of, of, of research, but um, I'm kind of looking at political economy less squarely in the South Asian context now, but still very much this idea of ideas of republicanism that, that have a kind of South Asian origin and, and then perhaps what they can teach the rest of the world. So um, there's actually a range of thinkers that come into this. And actually, not all of them are necessarily Indian, but the big Indian one is, is B.R. Ambedkar. And, and I'm kind of looking at his work um, on the, the the issue of Dalit uplift in, in India. So he was kind of the, the de facto leader of um, what were called India's untouchables um, throughout the first half of the 20th century. Um, major contributor to the Indian constitution, chairman of the drafting committee, all this stuff. Um, and ideas of kind of republicanism and humiliation in his work. So I think one of the things mainstream political theory doesn't look at with republicanism um, is it looks at all forms of arbitrary dependency that you can find yourself in that are usually to do with, uh, you know, the, the, the debate goes all the way back to kind of formal forms of slavery in the Roman world, um, institutions these days that might lock you into forms of dependency that there's no redress for and so on. But looking at humiliation, so one of the things on Bethka's obviously interested in is how untouchables have been humiliated throughout, um, well, you know, huge swathes of Indian history and what the political consequences of that are and what the, the political way out of that might be. 
Um, and what I'm trying to do is, is take that history of political thought and then um, extrapolate it in a more kind of conventional political theory way rather than a historian's way to a lot of contemporary struggles around race, uh, gender, uh, you know, feminism, uh, the trans issue and all that kind of stuff. And even, even actually sort of international relations on trade, you know, the, the perception China has to uh, its trade relations with the West, given the fact it, it conceives of its last couple of centuries as, as being centuries of humiliation. You know, is there a Republican handle we can get on that, that if you have been humiliated, actually it puts you in a in a sort of permanently disadvantaged political position? It's not enough to say, we're going to stop humiliating you from this point. The legacy of that humiliation actually affects um, political relationships down the line. How can we solve that in the the twenty first century, or try to solve it? I mean, I'm I'm being ambitious with my ability to solve it, but um, at least some some sort of food for thought for a lot of the, the frankly the challenges we're um, facing around the world today. Brilliant. All right. Well, that sounds quite fascinating. Thank you for sharing that preview with us. Um, and while you're off working on that project, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing on civil liberties, labor, capital and commercial society in Dadabai Naroji's Political Thought, published by Cambridge University Press. Vic, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Not at all. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>